the members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And thank you for joining us once again in our series, Life, the Islamic Answer, where we are still exploring the first theme in the series that has to do with knowledge in Islam. As you will remember, we said that for knowledge to be truly Islamic, in the technical sense, in the true sense in our religion, it must meet, it must satisfy two conditions. The first is that it must be acquired with the right intentions. And we spent a bit of time on the topic of sincerity or sincerity of intent or intentions in Islam. And the second condition is that knowledge must lead to action. And we can call that action in Islam, or we can also, within the theme of knowledge, or we can call it what we have been referring to as transformational knowledge. And this is a type of knowledge that is not simply an accumulation of data and information. It is a type of knowledge that penetrates the heart, that affects the soul. And once this happens, then we can see the effects of that in our behavior and how we carry ourselves. And that's why we call it transformational knowledge. And of course, the idea is that this does not, this transformation begins at the individual level, but the aim is that it does not stop at the individual level, that, that is that it goes to the collective, to the social level. So, of course, the first question or the logically the first topic that we should be talking about, therefore, within this theme of knowledge and action resulting from knowledge, is what kind of knowledge, and specifically from the perspective of knowledge, so not just action in Islam in general, but action within knowledge, we should be discussing the first act that we do, related to knowledge, and that is to become learners. But before jumping into that, we said that there's a number of premises, introductions that we want to sort out, that we want to cover before getting to that topic. And so we began by explaining that in our religion, going through the various narrations, the purpose of knowledge in our religion is action. And we explained the dangers and the harms and the negative aspect of knowledge not being followed by action, not being acquired to act upon. We looked at both sides. So out of necessity, we said in our religion there is a clear emphasis that knowledge must lead to action. And also, our religion also explains that if it does not lead to action, then it is negative, it is harmful, and it has bad consequences. We also talked very quickly about the effects of this relationship, knowledge and action. Okay, and so inshallah, maybe we cover that uh, in the wrap-up once we finish this topic. And we also spent a bit of time talking about the idea that it must be transformational. And I believe that the last time we met, we went 
through a number of different narrations that really emphasize this, where we clearly see that the knowledge is having a, a spiritual impact, that it is going much deeper than simply accumulating information. And we went through a series, a number of different effects, indications that allow us to say that this knowledge is truly Islamic knowledge and that it is going to lead to action. Okay, so inshallah, this is what we covered uh, until now. And we also said that um, on the other side, so for this topic, this topic of knowledge, the corollary to that is that we must not make the mistake of jumping into action without having secured, without having acquired the proper knowledge. So we don't want to fall on that mistake either. We've been really emphasizing on one side. And so we're simply making sure that the other side is also well understood before we continue with the topic. Okay? And so this is where we stopped last time. Inshallah, we finish this today. And there's a few more ahadith that we want to cover. And then we can start talking about the first act that derives directly from knowledge, which is becoming the learner in Islam. What does that mean? What are the duties? What are the privileges? What are the responsibilities? Merits associated with being a learner in Islam. Okay, and of course there's a component of that that's going to bring us back to the beginning of the series where we initially began to explain the importance of acquiring knowledge and having more aql and more ilm in, in, in our religion. Okay, so there's definitely a small overlap with what we covered, but we're going to go much more in depth here and we're going to explore that from every angle and then we're going to continue. We're certainly not going to stop at becoming a learner in Islam, right? We said the idea from all of this and to connect it to what we've been talking about is that we must create communities of knowledge. We must become a community of knowledge and not just up at the individual level where we, people are individually acquiring this knowledge and then it stops at the individual level. We must take it to the next level. That knowledge that we learn, we must spread, we must share. And so we understand the role of the person who shares, who communicates that knowledge to others. And we're going to emphasize on the duties or responsibilities of such a person. And inshallah, we all become that person. And then the responsibility of sharing the knowledge and what's the conclusion from that, which is if this is actually happening in a community, then we have a community of knowledge, where knowledge is not only being consumed, it's also being generated, and it's leading to more knowledge, and so on and so forth. Okay, so inshallah, this is kind of the the kind the, the general map of where we're trying to go with this topic. So, the hadith that are left, you will notice from the narrations that we're going to be looking at, here we said we're trying to finish off the last topic, which is as important as it is to secure, to understand that knowledge must lead to action in Islam. We must also not hurry. We must also not jump into action without having secured the knowledge first. Okay, so that's what we're trying to finish off in addition to what we already covered around that. So the first hadith comes to us from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, Al-ilmu bighayri amalin wabal. Wal-amalu bighayri ilmin dalal. Knowledge that does not lead to, or knowledge without action, 
is an affliction, Imam Ali alayhi salam says. It's a disease. It's an illness. And of course it's an illness. If this is really what we become, someone who just spends time or who obsesses or who thinks the purpose from knowledge is just to accumulate knowledge and always learn more knowledge and know more, but it never leads to action, then this is truly an illness. This is a problem. Okay, and this is why it's more important to act on a little bit of knowledge that we have, and we already went through these hadith, the narrations that talked about this. It's more important to act on a little bit of knowledge than to know a lot and act a little. Okay, that was a point that we covered already. So in this hadith, Imam Ali salam says, Al-ilmu bighayri amalin wabal. That's the first half. You acquire knowledge that does not lead to action. This is an affliction. This is an illness. This is a disease. And on the other side, وَالْعَمَلُ بِغَيْرِ عِلْمٍ ضَلَالٍ And to act without knowledge, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know why you're doing it, you just act and blindly act. Imam Ali السلام, says this is dalal, this is misguidance, this is loss. Okay, You may hit the target and not know, and you may completely miss the target, and you still won't know, because you don't have the knowledge to back up what you're doing. You're acting blindly. You're acting mechanically. This can apply to everything. This hadith that Imam Ali salam is talking about here can apply to every aspect of life. This can definitely apply to religion. So we say both sides. We Before we act, we must know in religion. In order to pray and to have a prayer that is meaningful, I have to understand what I'm doing. When I fast, I want to know what I'm, why I'm fasting. When I perform the pilgrimage, I want to know why I'm performing the pilgrimage. What does it mean? What is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Why is he asking me to do this? To worship, but to worship why? What is this supposed to do to me? How does this improve me? Make me a better person? How? Okay, so this is the knowledge that is required for the action. And on the other side, you need the, in order, yes, I acted, but in order to uh, have meaning and to generate sense behind the, the knowledge that I have, that knowledge must also lead to action. So just accumulating the knowledge, oh, I know all the information and I've read all the books that explain the benefits of prayer and I still don't pray, that's an issue. So as much as one is important, the other is as important. And you see them both here. And that's how they apply to religion for sure. But this applies to every aspect of life too. You can apply this to your job, you can apply this to your schooling, you can apply this to every aspect of your life. Okay, we're focused here on religion, but this applies to every aspect of life. And this is something we've talked about until now. So this is one of the ahadith that simply confirms what we called the reciprocal relationship between knowledge and action. We need both, you can't have one without the other, and if you do, there's something missing according to Islam. Okay? And this also, this hadith is not only saying that it remains neutral. You know, it's okay to know not to do, but it would be better to. No, no, this hadith goes further, and it's saying that there are harms. In the one case, this is a disease of the soul to constantly want to learn more when you don't intend to act on the knowledge you acquire. And on the other side, you are going to fall into misguidance if you act and you don't know why you're acting. You don't have the knowledge behind the action. Okay, so this is the first hadith. The second hadith, here I think we can look at the importance of specifically in religion 
acquiring, taking the time to acquire some knowledge in religion. And the examples we gave certainly apply here. So in general, I want to know before I do. I want to be politically active. I want to take on a project. I want to start a school in the community. Great. I need to go and acquire knowledge in that regard so that I do a good job. Right? I can't just jump into the work without having the knowledge to do it and to do it properly. And there may be others who are more qualified than me. Maybe I need to go and learn from them or get coaching or join our efforts, whatever it may be. This is in general. Specifically in religion, so this is a really good thing to do in general in life. When it comes to religion, it's not a choice. It's not simply a good thing to do. It's a necessity. And here Imam Ali alayhi salam in the next hadith we see it very clearly. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, Sakkinu fi anfusikum ma'rifata ma ta'budun. Make the knowledge of that which you worship inhabit your soul. And then he continues, he explains why. So that you benefit from the movements of the organs of your body. The acts of worship usually are performed externally. Right? What really matters is what's going on inside. But there's an external, our religion emphasizes, insists on both sides. The body has to show what's going on on the inside. So you can't just say, I'm submitted to Allah. You actually have to perform the prayer with the prostration in it that symbolizes what you're saying. Right? You feel the submission and you also act it out physically. So Imam Ali salam here, He's saying, make sure that the one you worship, he inhabits your soul. So that you benefit from the actions that you're performing with your body. Otherwise, those actions, they're just mechanical movements. They're just rituals. So what that you stand and you sit and you prostrate? What is the meaning of that? How is this benefiting you spiritually? What is it doing to you? Okay, so Imam Ali is here. He's giving you the key. He's saying, if you don't acquire the knowledge, if you don't understand who you're worshipping and why you're worshipping, you're not benefiting from that worship. Right? He's, so he's saying, make knowledge of the one you worship, inhabit your soul so that you may benefit from the movements of your body when you worship. So that you worship the one that you know. Which means what? Which means that we have to go out of our way to acquire a minimum of knowledge about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. About the one you worship. A minimum of knowledge about why we worship. A minimum of knowledge about religion and prophethood and revelation and the afterlife. If you don't have a minimum of knowledge about these things, then you will not really know why you're worshipping. Your worship is just going to be these mechanical, blind following. You know, you're told, just do this, do that. This is how you do it. This is how many times you do it. This is for how long you do it. It's amazing to know all of these details. There are people who take a great spiritual benefit from that. Why? 
because they say that this allows me to show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I care so much about my relationship with him that I want to worship him exactly as he wants me to worship him. That's good. If this is enough for you to gain that spiritual benefit, that's great. But you actually need a lot of prior knowledge to be able to believe that. Even this minimal level to say, I want to worship God as he really wants me to worship him. And that's why I want to focus on how I stand and how I prostrate and how I perform ruku' and sujood and fasting and zakat and pilgrimage. You are supposed to know, but you have to know why you're doing it. And then Imam Ali salam says, when you do, you are going to truly benefit from those acts of worship that your body is performing. Otherwise, these are just mechanical, blind acts of worship. No different than a machine moving. This is not the benefit. The benefit is not in the physical movement itself. There's something behind. There's something in your soul. Imam Ali salam says it's the, the level to which, the degree to which God inhabits your soul that you're going to benefit from those acts of worship. So the next, uh, there's a number of ahadith. I put them all together so that this could become a whole topic on its own, but I thought we'd cover it very quickly. So I put a few ahadith together that kind of have this harsher image. Okay, but I thought I would still present it as our religion presents it. In the previous discussion, in the previous discussion we saw that and we talked about this in the past, the importance in our religion of really having the meaning behind the act so that we don't stop at the ritual act, the mechanical movement of the ritual, right? We spent a lot of time, even when we spoke about intentions in Islam and the intent being much more important than the action that we're performing externally, right? So the previous hadith and the ones that we covered until now, they emphasized on this. Now we want to talk about the Importance of deeper knowledge. Don't stop at the surface. Don't accept the superficial understanding of what's going on. In our religion, not only are you encouraged to know that minimum, you're encouraged to constantly go to the deeper meaning behind what's happening. Okay, And this is where you see this harsh language come in. We find examples of it in the verses of the Holy Qur'an which I'm not spending time on now, inshallah in the future we'll come back to them. And we certainly see it in the hadith, in a number of different narrations that talk about this, and we have a few examples. The first is from the Holy Prophet He says, المتعبد بغير فقه كالحمار فالطاحون The one who is a worshipper without a deep understanding of what they're doing, of their worship, is like the donkey of the mill. The one who worships without knowing what they're doing is like the donkey of the mill. That's all this hadith says. Okay? Another hadith. I'm going to come back and comment on them. That's the first hadith. A second hadith from Imam Ali salam. He says, المتعبد على غير فقه So the one who worships without fiqh. We've talked a lot about the word fiqh in Islam. Right? Fiqh means a deep knowledge of something. 
to go to the bottom of something in your knowledge. Okay? So the one who worships without a deep knowledge, The one who worships without deep knowledge is like the donkey of the mill who turns and never leaves or never stops. Okay? So that's the second image. In the first one, that part was missing. Here we have a bit more explanation of why this is the case. Why is this the image of someone who acts, but they don't have any knowledge of why they're acting? They just act. So in the first case, we're just told they're like the donkey of the mill. In the second case, we're told they're like the donkey of the mill. They just keep turning and turning, and they never leave or they never stop unless you know the owner comes and makes them stop. Right? So this is the second hadith. The third hadith. On the day of rising, on the day of judgment, the scholars of evil or the evil scholars will be brought. Yu'ta, so they will be brought. And they will be thrown into hellfire, those evil scholars. So each one of them will start turning while in hellfire. They will start turning around a pole or a stick just like the donkey turns in the mill. فيقال, this is where we're going to get to the bottom of it. فيقال, this, to this person, يقالوا له يا ويلك بك اهتدينا فما بالك Woe to you. It is through you that we got guided. What happened to you? What's the matter with you that now you are in hellfire turning around the mill? قال إني كنت أخالف ما كنت أنهاكم I used to contradict that which I used to forbid you from doing. So basically, I don't do as I preach to you. Yes, I was a scholar. Yes, I knew a lot. But what I told you to do and not to do, I contradicted it in my own behavior. And what have we said for those who have followed the previous series when we talked about the afterlife? What's the main distinction between this world and the next world? Between the life, the worldly life, and the after-worldly life. The main distinction is that things are not only as they are in this world in appearance. This is a world of appearances, not truth. Everything's an appearance, external, superficial appearance. The next world is as it truly is. So the true form of the scholar who knows a lot, other people benefit from them, and yet they contradict their own teachings. I tell people to pray, but I don't pray. I I tell people to fast, be good, give charity, help others. I do none of that. My true form in that case, according to this ruwayah, and there are many others, according to this ruwayah, one version, one form of my true self is actually the donkey around the mill. And so in the afterlife, where things are truly as they are, this is not an image. It's an image in this world. It's a symbol in this world. But its truth is in the afterlife. This is what it looks like. 
when we see it as it truly is, this is what we see in the afterlife, right? The last hadith in this series is that, I believe from Imam Ali alayhi salam, مثل العابد الذي لا يتفقه كمثل الذي يبني بالليل ويهدم بالنهار The one who worships without acquiring deep understanding is like the one who builds during the night and who destroys during the day. Okay, so this is someone who does a lot of work. They're worshipping. They are acting. They're doing a lot of work. But what you see is a part of the work is good, it's productive, it's building, and the other half of the work that they're doing is destroying what they built. It goes in the other way. It's counterproductive. Okay, because they don't know what they're doing. That's what the hadith says. This is someone without knowledge. So a few comments about these hadith. You will notice that in every case, in each one of these hadith, we went through four, there are others, but these kind of cover what is covered in these hadith in general. The, in every one of these cases, the person that is being spoken about, that is being referred to, is someone who is a believer and someone who is actually worshipping and yet, the image that we are given of them is the donkey around the mill. Not a very beautiful image. It's a harsh image. So certainly here, we have to understand when does Islam take this harsher tone? It's because it really needs to give us a kick in the back and say, don't fall into these mistakes. Don't acquire knowledge and do nothing with it. And don't act without knowledge. And these are emphasizing on both sides. These are people who think that they are performing what religion says you're supposed to perform, but they have no knowledge at all. They have no clue why they're doing what they're doing. It's just blind following. And these people usually can become very dangerous. And so this is why Islam is constantly focusing, insisting that when you enter into this religion, you enter with a full submission because you understand. And you can't submit to something that you don't understand. You have to be convinced of this, not just as a matter of blind faith. You have to be convinced. You're happy with the logic. You're convinced with the arguments. You know why you're doing what you're doing. And you understand that there's, of course, an infinite amount of learning that you still have to do. Learning never stops, and inshallah we're going to talk about that in the future. But you have to gain at least a minimum of understanding of what you're doing. It can't stop at the superficial level. Religion says we do this, so we do this. Yeah, but why? And in what circumstances? And how is it supposed to help? How is it supposed to improve? How does this make you a better person? How does this bring you closer to God? How does this make you more at the service of other people? So that's the first point. Another point I think is worth spending a bit of time and we're not really going to go into the details here. I just leave these thoughts with you guys to think about. Why this image specifically? And as I said, if we had more time, we would go through a number of verses, a couple of verses of the Holy Quran that also give a similar image. 
this image of the donkey. Why specifically this image of a donkey and a donkey around a mill, just turning and turning and turning? So I thought a few points, and as I said, I leave these with you without any elaboration. The first is that clearly this donkey does not know what they're doing. The donkey does not know what it's doing. All it knows is that it's walking. It's in the mill, it's attached, and it's supposed to walk, and it can't do anything else, so it just does what it's trained to do. So it just walks. If you were to ask the donkey, what are you doing? It would not be able to answer. We have to be careful never to fall into that state. If someone says, why are you doing this? What are you doing? You have to be able to properly explain what are you doing and why you're doing it. And this is also part of, we called it earlier in the intention series, we said this is part of living intentional lives. Every part of your life is supposed to be with an intention. Every action that you perform is supposed to have an intent. You think appropriately about what you're about to do and you understand why you want to do it. Okay, And this is the whole notion of niya in our religion. We see it in the small acts. That's why you intend to pray before you pray. You say, this is my niya. I'm about to pray two raka'at. Salat al-Fajr, qurbatan ilallahi ta'ala, right? That's your niyyah, so that you know what you're doing. And so this applies at the micro level for each little act that you're performing, and it's supposed to apply to your life in general. What's your general intent? Where are you going? What's the meaning behind this? Everything that you're doing, what you eat, how you dress, the car you buy, the house you buy, the lifestyle you have, your major decisions, your small decisions, all of the all of this is part of a bigger plan, with a bigger intent, with a bigger objective. This is supposed to go somewhere. And your life will have purpose. It'll have direction. It'll have aim. Right? Everything is pointed in one direction. Everything you're doing aligns in one way. And it's easy for you afterwards, once this is done, to start looking at things and say, okay, but that thing is going the other way. I need to eliminate that. I need to get rid of that. It's counterproductive. I'm supposed to go all in one direction, but I have these three things that are pushing me back, pulling me back in another direction. Okay? So this applies at specific individual acts, micro acts. When you pray, when you do this, when you go to school, when you do this assignment, when you, I don't know, you try to excel at work, you try to excel at school, you try to make more money, whatever you're doing, you want to work out, whatever you're doing. There has to be some intent behind it. And that intent shouldn't stop just at that, at that specific act. It should connect with you in general. Who are you as a person? And how does this contribute to who you want to be, who you are and where you're going? Okay? The next point that I think is worth really looking at and hopefully serving as a warning to us just by virtue of being a good Muslim, I would argue that there are a lot of people who will benefit from you. The only question that we have to make sure for ourselves is are we benefiting from being a Muslim? The donkey that turns in the mill 
is going to benefit a lot of people. The donkey does not know what it's doing. And it, that turning in the mill is not necessarily benefiting it. There are people who benefit from that donkey. But the donkey itself does not benefit from what it's doing. So I would say, I would argue, this is the other image. And we have it very clearly in the case of the scholar. But this can apply to everyone. Let's make sure that once we have a bit of knowledge, yes, there is a duty that the moment you have a certain amount of knowledge, to spread that knowledge, to share that knowledge with others. There's a duty around that. But there's a greater duty to act on that knowledge first. When I share that knowledge, others will benefit from it. Did I benefit from it first? Did it transform me? Did it change me? Did I become better with that knowledge before I share it with others? If not, then I am the donkey of the mill. I am turning and I am benefiting others from that turning and I'm not benefiting myself. Okay? And the Holy Quran, when it talks about and elsewhere, that's what it's talking about. There are people who have been given knowledge, but they are just like a donkey carrying scripts, carrying books. The donkey does not benefit from the books it's carrying. It'll do a really good job in carrying the books from point A to point B. In point A, there were people benefiting from that knowledge, and in point B, there will be people benefiting from that knowledge. And the donkey will carry that knowledge to them. And it'll do a really good job in carrying it. But it will not itself benefit from that knowledge. So the Holy Quran says, don't be that donkey. Make sure that the knowledge is affecting you, transforming you. Okay? And of course, we talked already about this whole notion of hypocrisy and slash lack of faith. I don't know which one is worse. If we're not benefiting from the knowledge that we have, two very real reasons, one of them clear, one of them hidden. The clear reason may be that someone does not really believe in what they are learning and teaching. They're pretending to believe in it, but they're not fully believing in it. So that's nifaq, that's open hypocrisy. But there's also a hidden component to this. I may not have thought about it that way, but the truth is, and we saw the narrations, especially from Imam Ali salam and other Imams, they said, when someone does not act based on what they know, it's because they don't have faith in the reward or the punishment. Or they don't have full faith in the knowledge that they have. If I truly believe, and you remember the examples we gave, if I truly believe that this is something beneficial to me or something harmful to me, how can I not act on it? And yet here I am telling others about it, but I don't do it. So we said, careful that not to fall in the open hypocrisy, in the nifaq, where someone's simply two-faced, and don't fall into the hidden lack of faith, where you think you're a believer, but the truth is when you sit and you self-examine and you self-assess, you see that your actions are not matching with your knowledge. There's a gap. So this is where we have to be a lot more reflective. And this requires kind of a very harsh, 
honest look in the mirror, right? This is why I say this is hidden. It requires a lot more attention, a lot more honesty with yourself. If I know this to be the truth, are my actions matching it or not? If I don't know, if I have doubts, if I have questions, that's another topic. I need to go and reach that, get rid of the doubt. I have to reach certainty. But if I am sure and I know deep inside that this is the truth, then why are, are my actions not matching? Why is there a gap between what I know and what I do? I need to really self-examine and deal with that gap. Okay? So the conclusions from all of this, I think, is first of all, not to be contented with superficial understanding in religion. Our religion wants us to always go deeper. Don't be happy with knowing superficially. There is a lot, always a lot more to learn in our religion. Go for it. Don't stop at the superficial first layer of knowledge. There's always a lot more. And as we said, I think the, to me, a very important point here is as much as there is a duty to spread the knowledge, which we haven't covered yet, we're going to cover it in depth, the duty to spread what you know, there's a greater duty, which we're trying to establish now. So before I worry about others and getting the goodness and the beauty and the positive benefits of knowledge to them, there's a much, much greater duty incumbent upon me, which is to act on the knowledge that I have and then I share to others. That's secondary. As important as it is, it's secondary to first acting on the knowledge that we have. Okay. There's a hadith. This is the next hadith. There's a hadith from... So definitely something that happened at the time of the Holy Prophet in some sources, this hadith is mentioned as a story or a discussion between the Holy Prophet and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Okay, so for those who regularly attend Muharram uh, events, that name should ring a bell. If you remember Umar ibn Sa'ad, his full name is Umar ibn Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. So this is a story with Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, who is his father. Okay, so that's according to some sources. Other sources, and I would argue that this seems more realistic to attribute it to him, it's Ammar ibn Yasir, a very famous, amazing companion of the Holy Prophet of Imam Ali alayhi salam, Ammar ibn Yasir, and this would be more in line also with the profile and the biography of Ammar, who would be sent by the Prophet to teach the Holy Prophet used Ammar to teach a lot of newcomers into Islam. He would tell them, learn from Ammar, or he would send Ammar to them. In any case, there is also a possibility that both of them went through a very similar story, okay? because there's a slight difference in the wording if you read the original sources related to this. In any case. So I'll tell you the story of Ammar ibn Yasir, but I'll also add one line from the story of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, because I think it hits the, the nail on the head even more eloquently. Ammar ibn Yasir says that the Holy Prophet sent me. He says, بَعَثَنِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِلَىٰ حَيٍّ مِنْ قَيْسِ أُعَلِّمُهُمْ شَرَائِعَ الْإِسْلَامِ 
He says, the Holy Prophet, the Messenger of God, peace upon him, sent me to a a neighborhood, let's say, to the quarters, to the lodgings of Qais. So Qais is a tribe, and they had just entered into Islam, and there's a lot of them, and they're outside of Medina. So Ammar says, the Holy Prophet sent me to teach them the laws of Islam, to teach them the teachings of Islam. فَإِذَا قَوْمٌ كَأَنَّهُمْ الْإِبِلْ طَامِحَةٌ أَبْصَارُهُمْ لَيْسَ لَهُمْ هَمٌ إِلَّا شَاتٌ أَوْ بَعِيرٌ He says, so, but I found, so I'm sent to these people to teach them the teachings of Islam, but what I found is a people who were like wild beasts. Their stares are fixated on ambition. They have no care except a sheep or a camel. Okay? So please, when I go through these narrations, as we have been doing since the beginning, I always ask you to translate this into today's world. Today we don't have sheep and camels. We have other things. Those people are fixated on, the only things that they know in this world are their sheep and their camel. And they act like wild beasts, he says, Ammar says. فَانْصَرَفْتُ إِلَىٰ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ فَقَالَ يَا عَمَّارِ مَا عَمِلْتُ So I went back to the Holy Prophet صلى الله عليه وآله. So when he saw me, he says, So Ammar, what happened? What did you do with the people I sent you to, to teach? فَقَصَصْتُ عَلَيْهِ قُصَّةَ الْقَوْمِ وَأَخْبَرْتُهُ بِمَا بِهِمْ مِنَ السَّهْوَةِ So he says, I told the Holy Prophet, I informed him about those people, and I told him about their state of neglect and absent-mindedness and confusion, whatever you want to call it, obliviousness, that they're really not interested in anything I had to say. They're so obsessed and fixated on the things that he would consider trivial and without real meaning to them, right? They should not really, were. now that you have entered into Islam and I'm here to provide these teachings to you, why are you still so fixated on the camel and the sheep? There is so much more to your existence, to the world, than those things that are trivial. Okay, so he's surprised, he's shocked that this was their state, and he's telling the Holy Prophet, this is how I found them. And so this is the line from Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. He says uh, to the Holy Prophet, أَتَيْتُكَ مِنْ قَوْمٍ هُمْ وَأَنْعَامُهُمْ in the version of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, when the Holy Prophet told him, what did you do with those people? He told him, I'm coming back to you from a people who are exactly like the cattle that they raised. Okay, that's their level of intellect. That's the, their level of depth. Okay, they and their cattle are equals. Okay, and then he adds, the only thing they care about is what they put in their bellies and what they wear on their backs. Okay, that's the, in the version of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. So he said, the Holy Prophet said, O Ammar, Ya Ammar, Ala minhum? Do you want me to tell you about a people who are even stranger than those people? So Ammar is shocked, or in the version of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, he's shocked that he this is what he encountered and he's telling the Prophet. Prophet tells him, Do you want me to tell you about people who are even stranger than those people you met? So he says, Of course. The Holy Prophet says, قَوْمٌ عَلِمُوا مَا جَهِلَ أُولَٰئِكَ ثُمَّ سَهَوْ كَسَهْوِهِمْ People, those are the people who are even more shocking. People who, 
Let me tell you about people who are even more shocking, or do you want me to tell you about people that are more astonishing? They are those who know what those people do not know, and yet, yet they have the same amount or kind of neglect that those people have. The same type of forgetfulness, the same type of obliviousness as those people. The idea here, and that's the end of the hadith. On one side, we could say, and sometimes this is how this is reported, unfortunately, when we read the life of the Holy Prophet, the biography of the companions and the Holy Prophet, and we focus on the historical dimension. This is actually something that happened, but it has a lot of meaning. This is very real. That the Holy Prophet sends one of his companions to teach people who are newcomers into Islam. This is what they encounter. And they are shocked that these people cannot see that life is more than just caring about what goes in our bellies and what we wear on our backs. Or what we ride, what we eat, how we dress, and so on and so forth. Those people were shocked when they went to them. And they came to the Holy Prophet. Then, when the Holy Prophet answers, I would say the Holy Prophet is almost excusing those people. In both stories, he, the Holy Prophet specifically says, those who are even more astonishing, those who are even more surprising, are the people who know what those people do not. So the Holy Prophet is saying those people who acted this in this shocking, surprising way, they don't know any better. Right? It may be shocking and surprising to you, but they don't know any better. We have a lot of work to do with them. That's fine. To them it's shocking, but not to the Holy Prophet. That's his whole mission. Just like he did with those people that he's sending to them. What's shocking and surprising, the Holy Prophet says, are those who know. There are people who don't know. They don't know that life is more than what you wear and what you eat. But there are people who do know. You're supposed to know that life is much more, your existence is much more than what you put in your belly and what you put on your back. And the Holy Prophet says, it is really shocking that those two types of people, those who know and those who don't know, they live the same life. If someone doesn't know, they don't know. If you know, the logical outcome is, I would expect you to live a different kind of life. Yet, I see that you do know, but you're living the same exact life as the person who thinks That all there is to their existence is what I eat and what I wear and what I drive and where I live and so on and so forth. So what's the difference? That's why the Holy Prophet says those people are much more shocking. You're telling me those people who don't know they're acting in a shocking way? That's not shocking. They don't know any better. We have to go teach them. They don't have the knowledge. 
The ones who are shocking are you guys, the Holy Prophet is telling them. The people who do know, and yet you still live as though the only thing that matters is what you're putting in your belly and what you're putting on your back. And so that, as much as that applied to the people in the time of the Holy Prophet, is this not how we live our lives? Is there a lot more to our lives than what we eat and what we wear and making a bit more money so that we have a better car and a better house and better clothes and better watches and better shoes and so on and so forth? What else is there? So this is what we have to, each of us, ask ourselves. What else am I doing? How is my life different from the person who is entirely materialistic, who does not have a God in their life, who does not have Islam in their life. They don't believe in higher transcendental values. They don't believe in an eternal existence after the 60, 80, 120 years of this world. They think everything ends here. So you would expect them to put all of their energy to really benefit and enjoy the time they have in this world. But what about you who believes that this is a precursor to establish yourself for all of eternity? How are you supposed to live? What are you supposed to do here? How come is it that when I look at both lives, they look the same? Should there not be some significant differences between those two people? So this is why the Holy Prophet says, those who know and still live this way, they're a lot more shocking. And yet, you Ammar or Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas, you seem to be shocked that the people who don't know live this way. Yes, they are like wild beasts. That's how what a human being is. Biologically, we're an animal. We're no different than animals. We have the potential to be more than animals. But if you stay at that level, yeah, them, as he said, they and their cattle, the cattle that they raise, are equals. Yeah, it's true. But what about those who do know, who do have, who know how to get beyond that, to reach the higher potential? How come they live like their cattle? Okay, so inshallah, this serves as a, I think, a deep warning to a lot of us. And then there is this last hadith. So it's a little bit longer. I'm going to try to limit my comments here, but I think I'd like to finish it. At the next time we meet, we move to the Next topic, and we begin with by talking a little bit about the learner. Okay, so allow me to finish with this hadith. So this is a longer hadith, but I thought I would take it in its entirety from Imam Ali alayhi salam and read it and share it with you guys. As I said, inshallah, I'll try to limit my comments as I go through it because I think, first of all, it's directly related to everything we've been talking about. And it's also, I think, very good in terms of bringing together a lot of different streams or, or strings of thought that we've had over the past maybe 20 or so lessons, I think a lot of it you will recognize in this narration from Imam Ali salam. So there's two versions that I have found in this narration. Well, first of all, before I go to the two versions, the two narrations that I have found, in some works, uh, especially in Sunni works, some have said that this is actually not attributed to Imam Ali They say that this is attributed to Ibn Abbas. 
who was giving advice to his son. But there are a number of works that clearly state, and they refer this back to Imam Ali salam. So that's left to scholarship to really dig into and, and sort it out, but I simply mention it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, there are slightly different versions of this. I'm talking now specifically about the versions of works that attribute this directly to Imam Ali salam. And so there are two main ones that I relied on, and I spent a lot of time comparing between them. But I don't think I have time to explain all the differences. But I have highlighted them all. There are two main versions. One of them is in a work, and I know some of you guys are interested in this, so that's why I'm mentioning it. The main work that talks about this is Nahj al-Balagha. So this is in Nahj al-Balagha. As you know, Nahj al-Balagha has the longer sermons. That's part one. Then the second part of Nahj al-Balagha are the letters of Imam Ali alayhi salam. And the last part of Nahj al-Balagha are the short sayings of Imam Ali alayhi salam. And so there's a number of them. This, in you will find it, even though you will see that it's longer, okay, you will find it in the short sayings of Nahj al-Balagha. This is number 150. And because that work is also available in English, there's also a work by the name of Tuhaf al-Uqul, an amazing work by Sheikh al-Harrani that basically compiles and gives you the gems from the Holy Prophet and each one of the Ma'sumins. And so he also relates, reports this specific narration, and it's longer in Tuhaf al-Uqul. Okay, there are parts in Tuhaf al-Uqul that are not in Nahj al-Balagha, so I'm relying more on the version of Tuhaf al-Uqul, and some of the wordings are, are different between the two works. Okay, so that's for the methodology. It begins with, so assuming that this is from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, La takun yarju. So in the version of Imam Ali, in the version of Ibn Abbas, we're told Ibn Abbas was giving this piece of advice to his son or one of his sons. In the version of Imam Ali alayhi salam, we're told a man came to Imam Ali and asked him and asked the Imam, give me advice. Grant me advice or share advice with me. So he said, La takun yarju al-amal. Do not be someone who hopes for bliss. You hope for heaven, you hope for paradise, you hope for bliss in the afterlife without action. Don't be of those people. Just empty hopes, empty wishes. You have to act in this world to get the afterlife. And don't be of those who aspire for re repentance by lengthening desires. Right? If you want to repent, repent now. Don't extend living in your desires or in your hopes, bitul al-amal. Don't extend the hope and keep postponing the repentance. Repent now. Don't keep pushing it back. Okay, so one you clearly see so that I don't repeat these because you'll see these running themes through it. You'll see the importance of work. You saw it right from the beginning. It's not empty wishes and hopes. Work, 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 work. Okay, we went through it in the beginning. Avoid procrastinating in general and avoid procrastinating specifically around spirituality and repentance and getting closer to God. Okay, this is something unfortunately that is present in, in pockets in our communities. You'll hear a lot of people talk in the communities of, you know, the girl being too young to wear the hijab, even though she fully understands and she's ready. The guy is too young to go to Hajj and perform the pilgrimage now. No, let him live 
because he wants to sin now for another five or ten years and he wants to live as he wishes so that when he goes to Hajj, Allah will forgive him once and for all when he's in his 40s or 50s or 60s. Why? Who tells you that you're going to live that long? Who knows where you will be when you'll be 40 and 50 and 60 if this is what you intend to do now? You have the opportunity to go and show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you can perform the pilgrimage now. And you say, I'm going to procrastinate and I'm going to push it back. These are examples. There are so many of them. You have the chance to do something good now. Do it now. Don't procrastinate. Don't come up with excuses. Don't live in hopes. Imam Ali says, and by the way, as, as I read this, I don't know how many times earlier today, as I, as I read this, I always try to imagine Imam Ali in front of me, talking to me. And you'll see that it can get, if you just take it at, at a superficial level, it might not Im- impact you. But if you imagine your Imam that you claim to be following, talking to you, and I've told, I've said this a lot in the past, this is where you see the standard of Imam Ali Many of us want to be, we're proud to say, we follow Imam Ali. Okay, this is your Imam talking to you. This is how he talks to us. So you have to be willing to listen, really, and act. Okay, it can't just be empty hopes, as the Imam says. You have to act. And this was the real difference between Imam Ali and everyone else. This is why he is Imam Ali. Amongst all the prof- the people around the Prophet, the companions and the family members, there's only one Ali. There's only one Imam Ali. Why? Because he lives this way. I can do something good. There's no procrastination. There's no hesitation. There's no second thought. There's no doubt. There's good, I do. That's it. There's no false hopes. There's no pushing back the repentance when I can repent now. He continues. Imam Ali salam says about this person. So now he's going to start describing this person. And I would say, you know, for each of us to really look in the mirror and to see how many of these traits might apply to us. Imam Ali salam began by saying, don't be of those. La takun. The whole sermon, the whole saying is, just don't be that person. So now he's describing the person, right? Don't be someone who Wishes for a bliss without acting. Don't be someone who wishes for repentance while extending their hopes and their desires. Next, يَقُولُ فِي الدُّنْيَا قَوْلَ الزَّاهِدِينَ Someone who utters words like ascetics. You know, people who are detached from this world. That's how they utter, that's how they talk, these people. Who utters words like ascetics in this world, but they act in it like those who desire it or who are eager for it. So, the words... I'm detached from this world. This world is not really why we were created. We have to not be materialistic and so on and so forth. But if you look at the actions, the actions are the actions of the person who desires this world, who is eager for this world. Okay, it's cheap. From the beginning of the series, we've been saying talk is cheap. It's easy to say the, the right words. And this is again a theme in this sermon or the short saying from Imam Ali. Now he's talking about the hypocrisy between words and actions. That's one. And this is also, sometimes I think it requires a hard wake-up call. Sometimes, sometimes we have a certain image of ourselves. I may think that I'm someone who is deep. I'm 
I'm thinking, I believe, or the image I have of myself is someone who is detached from this world. That's the image I have of myself. But what am I really like? So the Imam is telling me where to focus. Don't look at my words. I can't look at what the words that I say. He says, look at the actions that you perform. Are those the actions of someone who is eager for this world, who is living in desire of this world? Or are they the actions of someone who is detached from this world? You understand the priorities and you act accordingly. In minha lam So he's now describing this person. He says, this is someone who, when they are granted something from it, they are never content. No matter how much you're given from this world, you want more. And if they are denied, they are not happy, not satisfied. They are incapable of being grateful for what they have been given. And we, we've talked about gratitude and we'll talk much more about gratitude in the future. Gratitude has to show in your actions. Yes, you say the words, you say Alhamdulillah, you say Shukran Lillah, but it has to show in your actions. Your gratitude to Allah for what He gives you has to show in actions, not in words. Okay? يَعْجِزُ عَنْ شُكْرِ مَا فِي مَا And yet, so they're incapable of being grateful for what they already have, and yet, they are always coveting more. Okay? And whatever remains. And we can have a whole discussion on what it means to be content, what it means to be happy and satisfied and at peace with what you already have. And do you really need more than what you have? And what's the purpose of getting more? And is it worth the energy that you're going to put in to get it? Or is that energy better spent somewhere else? And so on and so forth. That's a whole discussion. Then the Imam salam continues and he says, Yanhannas, this person, Yanhannas, so he refrains, he asks others to refrain from this world or things in this world. He asks others to refrain, but he does not abstain himself. Okay? So what goes for others does not go for me. And he commands others for what he himself does not do. يُحِبُّ الصَّالِحِينَ this is where I think it gets very interesting. Imam Ali salam says, this person, he loves those who are virtuous. He recognizes those who are virtuous and he loves them. But he does not act like they act. So Imam Ali salam is saying, what kind of love is that? You love those who are virtuous, but you don't act like them. If you love them, you should act like them. وَيُبْغِضُ الْمُسِئِينَ وَهُوَ مِنْهُمْ And he hates or he despises those who are vicious or in the version of Mahj al-Balagha, those who sin. He despises those who sin. يَبْغَضُ الْمُذْنِبِينَ النَّهْجَ الْبَلَاغَةِ وَهُوَ أَحَدُهُمْ And he is one of them. He despises those who sin and he is one of them. He loves those who are virtuous but he does not act like them. Okay? وَيَكْرَهُ الْمَوْتَ لِكُثْرَةِ سَيِّئَاتِهِ He hates death because of the abundance of his sins. وَلَا يَدَعُهَا فِي حَيَاتِهِ And yet, he does not cease from sinning 
in his life, during his lifetime. This is a whole huge topic. We have a number of different narrations. They come to the Holy Prophet, to the Imams. A lot of people, they're trying to beat this fear of death. Someone who is a strong believer, there are narrations, there are verses of the Quran that say you should not fear death. It's just part of the cycle of this life. That's why you were created. It's inevitable. It's not an option. It's not a maybe. It's not a probability. It will happen. So simply prepare yourself accordingly. We have narrations when they are asked, Ahlul Bayt, in some narrations we are told, why do people hate death? Because we have too many sins. Someone who knows well that they have too many sins, they don't want to die because they know what awaits after death. We have other narrations that say when they ask the Imam, why are we so afraid of death? The Imam says, Lack of good actions. So in the first case, there are people who fear the amount of sins they have. Other people fear the lack of good. They know how many chances of good they have and they're not taking them. They don't do enough good. They need to put out a lot more good in this world before they leave, before they feel comfortable and ready to leave. Or they're not prepared in some hadith because you're not prepared, the imam says. Okay? And we have also a hadith that say because you don't know what's awaiting you. People fear that which they don't know. And so this is perhaps a lack of knowledge. We need to spend time understanding what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? What does our religion say about what awaits us when we die? Okay? And there's a number of other reasons that are given. Inshallah one day we talk more about this. وَيُقِيمُ عَلَى مَا يَكْرَهُ الْمَوْتَ مِنْ أَجْلِهِ In Nahj al-Balagha here, he says, and he keeps doing that which causes him to hate death. Whatever it is. So for instance, lack of good. For instance, doing sins. Imam Ali alayhi salam says he hates death, and yet he continues to do the thing that makes him hate death. Just stop so that, and fix it so that you don't hate death. It's inevitable and it's coming. Prepare yourself. These two sentences are not in Nahj al-Balagh. That's why I said the version of Tahaf al-Uqul is longer. يَقُولُ كَمْ أَعْمَلُ أَلَا أَجْلُسُ فَهُوَ يَتَمَنَّى الْمَغْفِرَةِ وَيَدْأَبُ فِي الْمَعْصِيَةِ وَقَدْ عُمِّرَ مَا يَتَذَكَّرُ فِيهِ مَنْ تَذَكَّرُ He says, how much will I work and exhaust myself? So as soon as he does a bit of work, or he feels that he did some work, that's already too much. That's a lot of exhaustion, a lot of effort that I have put out, I shall sit and wish. I shall sit and hope. Pray, sometimes we might call it. I'm going to sit and pray. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to accept me. I'm a good guy. So he wishes for forgiveness, Imam Ali salam says. So he wishes for forgiveness. He doesn't act. He wishes for forgiveness while pursuing his disobedience. He's wishing for forgiveness while he pursues his disobedience. Yet, Imam Ali salam says, he has lived long enough to gain remembrance, if he were of those who remember. And then the Imam continues, يَقُولُ فِي مَا ذَهَبْ He says about that which he has missed, so the past, لَوْ كُنْتُ عَمِلْتُ وَنَصِبْتُ لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لِي وَيُضَيِّعُهُ غَيْرَ مُكْتَرِثٍ غير مكترث لاهية. So he says, 
Had I worked tirelessly, had I put in the effort before, it would have been much better for me, all of these missed opportunities. But then he wastes the opportunity, indifferent and foolish. So now he woke up. He realizes when he has that moment of being sober and understanding and realizing how much he has already missed, Imam says he realizes, he knows. He says, if only I would have done more. And then he goes on, he wastes it, he wastes that opportunity, indifferent and foolish. Then he says, In Sakima Nedima ala tafriti fil amal, wa in Saha amina mugtarran yu akhirul amal. When he falls ill and he might fear to die, or he's just ill and he wishes that he could do more, he regrets his past negligence and lack of action. So now you, you want to act. Now you're sick. Suddenly, you're sick at the time that you're supposed to fast. You can't fast. So now you really want to fast and you regret all those past opportunities where you were healthy and you could have fasted and you didn't. And now you want to, but now you're sick. You see the, the theme of opportunity and missed opportunity. And the same thing, many of our scholars, I remember as I, I read this, many of our scholars, they wrote many of their works about spirituality much later in life. They're 70 and 80 and over. And many of them are writing and they know that those who are reading, they're 20 and 30 and 40 and much younger. And they write, I remember still one of the our biggest scholars writing in akhlaq about spiritual development. He says, now that I'm writing this, my bones hurt too much if I stand to pray. And I body can't, my body can't take fasting for too long like it used to when I was young. And I regret nothing more than not having done enough of it when I was younger. So I hope those who are reading this learn from it. But will we? Or do we fall on the same pattern that the Imam is describing here? He says, when you're ill, now you realize what you had. And you took it for granted and you did not act. You have the image of yourself as being good, but you take it for granted and you do nothing. And then when it's taken away, now you wish you could have. So the Imam continues, وَإِن صَحَّ But when he is healthy, his vanity makes him secure. It's a false security. It makes him feel secure, so he delays acting. As though you will always remain in full health. As though always you will be in situations where your circumstances will allow you to be good. So you're not seizing the opportunity now. You don't know what tomorrow has for you. Right? What's in store? This, this might be your last opportunity to do something. To pray. To help someone. To do an act of charity. Do something good for someone. Anyways. In the version of Nahj al then he says, He is impressed with himself. He's pride. He has pride. He has, he's proud of himself so long as he is healthy and he is hopeless when he is afflicted. And that's another theme here. That you're supposed to know who you are and what your values are. And that these circumstances that are constantly changing in your life should not destroy you. They are meant to be tribulations and tests to see how you act when you have and when you don't have, when you have health and when you don't have it, when you have the social status and when you don't have it, 
When you have wealth and when you don't have it, how do you act? How do you carry yourself? Do you constantly change and you reinterpret? Or do you understand that you're in this world to be tested with all sorts of change? How do you handle yourself? How do you handle all this change? تَغْلِبُهُ نَفْسُهُ That's another huge one that we don't have time to spend time on. تَغْلِبُهُ نَفْسُهُ عَلَى مَا يَظُنْ وَلَا يَغْلِبُهَا عَلَى مَا يَسْتَيْقِنْ His self overpowers him with his suspicion. Yet he cannot overpower it with what he knows with certainty. We live today in a world of doubts. Everything is relative. You're not supposed to know anything for sure about anything. And if you do, it's a taboo. Right? Everything has to be relative. And there's your truth and there's my truth. Right? And we live in a world of constant doubt. He says his doubt overpowers him, this person. His doubt becomes a pretext. So it becomes stronger than what he knows with certainty. وَلَا يَغْلِبُهَا His self has doubts and certainties. He says his self is beaten by its doubts and he does not beat it using certainty. There are things that you know for sure. You know that you're going to die for sure. You know that God is waiting for you after death and there's a judgment and there's a heaven and a hell. Don't let the little doubts that you get come and fool you now. Beat the doubt with the certainties, right? Don't allow the doubt to creep and then make you procrastinate and make you not act and make you let go of things that you know for sure. You sell everything. You let go of everything because of a single doubt. Okay, that's a whole discussion, inshallah, we come back to it. Okay? He's never satisfied with the provisions prescribed for him. He does not trust what he has been what has been guaranteed for him. So he has no reliance in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah will always take care of me one way or another. Right? He does not perform those acts which are his duty. So he is constantly in doubt about himself. When he has wealth, he becomes proud and he falls into vice. And then when he becomes poor, he despairs and he becomes weak. See how any change in his circumstances changes him completely. Imam Salam says he has a wafra, he has an abundance of sins, and he lives in an abundance of favors, graces from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet he always seeks more but does not show gratitude. ولا يشكر ويتكلف من الناس ما لا يعنيه ويصنع من نفسه ما هو أكثر He burdens himself with the sins of others when they do not concern him. Yet, he himself does more. إن عرضت له شهوة If a passion or a desire presents itself to him إن عرضت له شهوة واقعها باتكال على التوبة He is quick falling into it out of reliance on repentance. Or in the version of Nahj al-Balagha, he says, أَسْلَفَ الْمَعْصِيَةَ He mortgages the sin and he delays the repentance. Okay? 
Though he does not know how that will be. He doesn't know how he will repent. His desire for heaven, his desire does not satisfy him. And his caution or his fear from hell does not stop him. ثُمَّ يُبَالِغُ فِي الْمَسْأَلَةِ حِينَ يَسْأَلْ وَيُقَصِّرُ فِي الْعَمَلْ When he asks, when he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for instance, he greatly insists in his ask when he is begging. But he falls short in his actions. The actions, again, don't match the hopes. يَصِفُ الْعِبْرَةَ وَلَا يَعْتَبِرْ وَيُبَالِغُ فِي الْمَوْعِضَةِ وَلَا يَتَّعْبْ So he describes the morals and the lessons but he does not learn from them. And he is, insists when giving advice, but he does not follow it. فَهُوَ بِالْقَوْلِ مُدِلْ وَمِنَ الْعَمَلِ مُقِلْ When he, he is tall in speaking, and he is short, or he falls short in action. يَرْجُو نَفْعَ عَمَلٍ لَمْ يَعْمَلْهَ He hopes for the benefit of deeds that he has not performed. There are things that you are hoping for in the afterlife. They are the outcome of specific deeds. How can you hope for the outcome when you have not performed the deed? The Imam says, he hopes for the benefit of deeds he has not performed. And yet he feels safe from the punishment of a crime he has actually committed. He feels safe from it. This is why... I said it's a theme, a running theme. Someone who lives in hope, in false hopes. When the Imam keeps saying, go back to action. Your actions have to be fi- fixed. يُبَادِرُ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا إِلَى مَا يَفْنَى وَيَدَعُ جَاهِلًا مَا يَبْقَى He rushes into the things which perish in this world and ignores those which last foolishly. يُنَافِسُ He's always competing for, for those things which perish And he's easy going when, About things that are going to last forever So he sees profit as loss And loss as profit When it comes by the standard of Imam Ali Profit in the afterlife And loss in the afterlife He sees it as a loss and a gain he fears death, but he does not fear missing the opportunities. He, he deems excessive the disobedience of others. When he hears about or when he sees the sins of other people, he considers them excessive. But he deems small his own when he is the one performing them. The same sin, when I do it, it's okay, it's easy. When someone else is performing it, it's very excessive. They shouldn't do that. They're an awful person now that they have done it. So he considers great his own acts of worship. And he considers them insignificant when others are doing them. I do something, when I do it, it's the end of the world. You see how much effort I have put in, how much time I have put in, how much money I gave away. I'm such a great person. 
the other people are doing the same, he considers that very little. They might be doing even more, he considers it little. يَخَافُ عَلَىٰ غَيْرِهِ بِأَدْنَىٰ مِنْ ذَنْبِهِ وَيَرْجُوا لِنَفْسِهِ بِأَدْنَىٰ مِنْ عَمَلِهِ He fears for others much less than his own sins. He thinks basically someone is being, he warns others that they may end up in hell if they do those things. But it's okay when he does them. Okay? وَيَرْجُوا لِنَفْسِهِ And he hopes for himself much less than what his deeds allow. He is therefore hard on others flattering and lenient with himself. He fulfills his obligations only when he is healthy and pleased, when things are going well. But he betrays when he is angry or inflicted by misfortunes. When he is cured, he thinks that his repentance was accepted. Things are going well. God must be happy with me. وَإِنْ ابْتُلِيَ ظَنَّ أَنَّهُ قَدْ عُوقِبْ As soon as he is, a misfortune befalls him, he thinks that he's being punished. لَا يَبِيتُ قَائِمًا وَلَا يُصْبِحُ صَائِمًا So, Imam Ali says, he never spends the night in worship. And he never spends the day fasting. So, of course, the Imam is not talking about the obligatory fast here. يُصْبِحُ وَهِمَّتُهُ الصُّبْحُ so in the morning And the explanation of it comes in the second sentence In the morning he cares only for the breakfast When he was not When he has not stayed up all night in worship And in the evening he cares only for the supper When he did not even fast You know when I said earlier I said you have to realize what the standard of Imam Ali is. He says someone who, when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you think about and the most important thing you care about is to eat your breakfast, it should only be the result of having stayed up all night in worship. So now you deserve that breakfast. And if you, your only desire at night is to reach that supper, it's because you spent the whole day fasting. That's what should allow you to Deserve that supper And so it will entitle you To be allowed to hope for the supper Otherwise these things should not be the first thing that come to mind There are things much more important than your breakfast and your supper Okay, You see the, the standard of Imam Ali You want to be a follower of Imam Ali This is your Imam And this is how That's why I always say This is how he lived Before he's telling this to this man who came asking for advice This is how the Imam lived this is how he dealt with himself. When he would be asked, why do you push yourself so much? Why do you worship so much? He says, nafsi, nafsi I exercise this soul. I make it go through exercises to become better and stronger. These are not empty words. It's not empty preaching from the imam. Okay, so when he says this, this is at the level of the person asking. This is not at his own level. That's why we say, if this is your imam talking to you, what are you going to hear from this? How are you going to go back and change how you view things? You see the standard of Imam Ali where it is. In any case, He seeks God's protection against those who are less powerful than him. But he never seeks God's protection against those who are more powerful. Because he wants to be one of them. 
He expects others to obey him when he is in a position to be obeyed. He expects others to obey him, but he himself does not obey his Lord. النوم or اللهو in نهج البلاغة مع الأغنياء أحب إليه من الذكر مع الضعفاء. So entertainment or foolishness in the company of the wealthy is dearer to him than remembrance with the weak. Okay, those who are poor, those who are weak. يغضب من اليسير ويعصي في الكثير. He's angry with the diddle when he has diddle, and he commits many sins when he's given a lot. And this is, by the way, the biggest problem of having a lot of resources in this world. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of resources, of being wealthy, being powerful, having all the luxuries, except that each one of these comes with all sorts of possibilities for sins and crimes and, and, and. And of course, the responsibility to act appropriately with those things. Okay, that's the issue with them. So he's this person, definitely he filled, he fits the bill. يَعْصِيْفِ الْكَثِيرِ he commits many sins when he's given a lot. Okay? يَعْزِفُ لِنَفْسِهِ عَلَىٰ غَيْرِهِ وَلَا يَعْزِفُ عَلَيْهَا لِغَيْرِهِ He prefers himself over others and he never prefers others over himself. فَهُوَ يُحِبُّ أَنْ يُطَاعَ وَلَا يُعْصَى He loves to be obeyed and never disobeyed. وَيَسْتَوْفِي وَلَا يُوفِي He seeks fulfillment of obligations towards himself. He's going to go and seek out every right that he has over others. But he does not fulfill his obligations towards others. يُرْشِدُ غَيْرَهُ وَيُغْوِي نَفْسَهُ He guides others and misguides himself. وَيَخْشَ الْخَلْقَ فِي غَيْرِ رَبِّهِ وَلَا يَخْشَ رَبَّهُ فِي خَلْقِهِ He fears the people and not his Lord. Yet he does not fear his Lord in dealing with the people. Okay, so he's always worried. What are people going to think? So all of his actions are for show. He fears the people more than his Lord. And he does not fear his Lord when dealing with the people. So he's unjust. He transgresses, he trespasses, he's unjust. He lies and cheats and steals from others. Right? He does not fear his Lord when dealing with people. He neither, he neither praises his Lord for his graces, nor does he thank his Lord for any increase. He does not enjoin good. He does not tell others or encourage good. He does not forbid any evil. He lives in constant confusion. In If he's ill, he acts sincerely and he shows repentance. Now I'm ill. وَإِنْ عُوفِيَ قَسَى وَعَادٍ And if he's cured, he behaves harshly and he goes back doing the same thing he was doing before. فَهُوَ أَبَدًا عَلَيْهِ وَلَا لَهِ He is always against himself and never for it. That's one interpretation. And in the other one, it's a complaint. He believes his fate is always against him. He's never happy with his fate. His fate is always against him, never with him. لَا يَدْرِي عَمَلُهُ And we finish with this. لا يدري عمله إلى ما يؤديه إليه حتى متى وإلى متى. He does not know where his ill deeds are going to take him. How long and until when will he be in such a state? He does. He doesn't know where he's going in this world. He doesn't move with a clear path, a clear objective, 
a clear aim, right? It's constant living in hopes and in wishes and viewing myself better than everyone else and taking everything that I feel like taking and not having any gratitude for anything I have and never being satisfied with anything and constantly procrastinating and pushing back things that I know I'm supposed to be doing now. I'm supposed to repent. I'm supposed to become good. I'm supposed to act fairly with others. I push all of that back constantly, living in the hope, being proud, having the false vanity that I'm healthy and I'm good and I'm going to have a long life and I, I have time. I always have more time. I'll have more opportunities. Right? And so the imam says, he doesn't know where all of this is going. He doesn't know what, how all of this is going to end. Until when, for how long, and until when will he be in such a state? And then the imam ends, Allahumma ja'alna minka ala hadar. O God, make us beware of you. Ahfidh, then he told the man, Ahfidh, wa'i, insarif idha shi'd. Learn and understand and leave if you wish. That's the, as we said, the, imam, the man came to the imam asking for advice. Basically, the imam is saying that's enough advice. Learn what I said, understand it, and you can leave if you wish. Inshallah, we learn something from this. We take something back and translate it into action in our lives. I usually don't go for these much longer texts, but I thought it combines a lot. And I've said before, and I'll say again, the standards of Imam Ali salam are very high. And usually we take them in very small doses. Right? I usually break up something like this into 10, 15, 20 little parts that we take over different weeks as we meet. Okay, But this one I thought is a good way to end this whole section. Inshallah, the next time we meet, we start talking about what it means to act based on knowledge very concretely, which means becoming a learner, becoming learners in Islam. I'll end with this and then we can take some questions or comments. Um, after this saying from Imam Ali salam. of course it takes us longer by the way to read it because we're doing both Arabic and English at the end of it Sharif al-Radi, the compiler of Nahj al-Balagha, Sharif al-Radi he writes لَوْ لَمْ يَكُنْ فِي هَذَا الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا هَذَا الْكَلَامِ if there was nothing else in this book that he's compiling called Nahj al-Balagha if there is no other speech there's nothing else in this book except this saying from Imam Ali alayhi salam, إِلَّا هَذَا الْكَلَامِ لَكَفَى بِهِ مَوْعِظَةً نَاجِعَةً وَحِكْمَةً بَالِغَةً وَبَصِيرَةً لِمُبْصِرٍ وَعِبْرَةً لِنَاظِرٍ مُفَكِّرٍ He says, this short utterance would have sufficed as an effective preaching, an eloquent wisdom, an insight for the one who sees, and a lesson for a thinker who understands. He says, this is the only piece of advice that you really need from all of Nahj al-Balagha, if this is the only one that you had, it's enough. It says everything. There's nothing else left to say after this. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us benefit from these types of sayings from Ahl al-Bayt salam and from Imam Ali salam. And inshallah, next time we meet, now that we finished kind of the introductory part to transformational knowledge, what we mean by it, that knowledge must lead to action, now we can move to the concrete steps we take and the first one being that we become learners. So what does that mean in Islam? So we have a whole structure that we want to follow. The rights and the duties and the merits 
of the learner, their, their, the characteristics, some of which have been highlighted in the ahadith, how to become a better learner in Islam. And then, as we said, we'll move to the teacher and then the building of the community of knowledge. So that's what we're moving towards, inshallah. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين So if there are any questions, concerns, comments or there's a couple here So Ahmed and then Hassan So thank you for your initial comment and for the question. I think first of all, it's an excellent question, and the answer is mentioned in the question. Um, so the question is, in short, uh, in case people don't hear it online, the question is, how come is it so difficult uh, for someone to actually be able to overpower their doubts and their desires and their passions and their weaknesses? Uh, when they should know better, when they have the knowledge, right? That's the question. Um, and the short answer to that is, and, and that was part of the question too, I guess asked rhetorically or not, uh, is it there by design? Yes, that the, that's the whole purpose. That is part of the test of being a human being. Um, one way to understand the human being, and that's why we've spent time in the past and we will more in the future too, in really making very clear the distinction between faith and knowledge. Sometimes people mix up the two, and so you think that just because you know something, you believe it. But if you believe it, then you would see it in your actions. When human beings really believe something, it shows in their actions. 
When it doesn't, it means there is a lack of faith, even though rationally, logically, you understood something. That's why in the past I've said knowledge is not by choice. When a human being knows something, you don't have a choice to know. The easiest example that I can give to that is when you have knowledge of, of this chair in front of us. The knowledge of the chair is not a choice that you have. If you see the chair in front of you, if your vision crosses this chair, you are now you have you now have knowledge, you have an image of the chair in your mind. There was no choice for you to make. There is no decision for yourself or your soul to make to accept this image in your mind or not. Or one plus one equals two. The image of the one plus the one and the two, these images, these are a logical necessity. There's no choice to make. A human being, when they acquire knowledge, you may put in the effort. What we're talking about to seek knowledge, you have to put in the effort to get the knowledge. But the knowledge itself is not a choice. Right? If it's logically, properly structured, these are mental images that automatically will end up in your mind. So you don't get any reward for that. You didn't do anything. These just appeared in your mind. You might get reward for seeking, for the effort you put in to get them. But knowledge is nothing more than that. Now that the image is in your mind, what are you going to do about it? This is the human part. This is the difference between the human being and everything else. When we look, if we go back to certain narrations and our understanding of other creatures, the difference between the human being and other creatures, what is it? The mental image can appear in the, in the animal. But the animal does not have as much capacity as the human being for deciding what to do next. The animal is hungry. The mental image appears that this is food. The animal will move towards the food. Because the instinct, the biological and all the other instincts of the animal are going to trump almost, in almost all cases, everything else. There are exceptions, but we're, not, we're talking about the general rule. That's one type of creature. It's not that they don't have mental images. It's not that they don't have knowledge. It's that they can't have choice, the freedom of choice to decide what am I going to do now that I know. That's the animal. That's why if the human being lives in this way, they are living an animal life. And that's why religion is meant to, one of its purposes is to push you, to elevate you beyond the animal life, beyond the biological life. So that even if the mental image appears in your mind, even if the instinct is there, you as a human being, you're defined by what you're going to do next. How much discipline do you have over that biological or animal instinct? You sink to it, the Quran says, They are like cattle, no, they are worse. You've gone back to your basic desires and you have the potential. That's why you're worse. You're not equal. Because you have the potential to be more. On the other side, 
we told, we're told Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created other types of beings. For instance, angels. Do angels know things? They do know things. Can they know more? They can know more. There's a dispute between the scholars in whether the angels can learn more or not. Okay, but generally speaking, an angel knows things. So what's the difference between the human being and the angel? Is the angel free? Does the angel have freedom of choice or not? The angels have freedom of choice. They can decide to do or not to do. And they have the mental image. What's the difference? The difference is that they don't have the instincts. You have an instinct that makes you want to act like an animal. That's why you're a human being. And you have the ability to understand things like the angel. And this is where you have to show your freedom. And you have to show your potential, your humanity. Are you going to sink low? Are you going to let the animal instinct take over? Or are you going to act more angelically? And if you do, if you don't, and you follow the animal instincts, the Quran says you become worse than the animals. Because you have so much more potential and you're acting like them. So you're worse. But if you do the opposite, you and the angel act the same way. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says if you do, you become better than the angel. Because the angel does not have the instinct that pulls him, the biological weakness that you have. You are fighting something the angel is not. So you're going to be better than the angel. This, the potential to go up or go down, this is equal to the human species. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and in His wisdom, He decided to make you, specifically you, in the human being category. He put you in this bucket, and He put me in this bucket. He could have put us in other buckets, or not created us at all. Okay? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created all this continuum of differing, different beings. And he gave them different functions and different abilities. And so rewards and punishments that go accordingly with them. What's the purpose? What's the point of the creation of the human being? The Quran says there is this very heavy burden that no other creature accepted to take on. Except one. It's a human being, the Quran says. There is a covenant that we presented to the heavens and the earth and the mountains, all other creatures, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala presented a covenant. What is it? The free will. That's one of the strongest interpretations of this aman. All other creatures, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala presented it to them. Do you want to have, how much free will do you want to have? They understood. All the creatures understood the burden of having this much freedom, this much potential. The only creature that said, I'll take it, is the human being. So the Quran says, He took on such a great burden. And so he will act with injustice. And he will act with foolishness and ignorance. Even though the point of this burden is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward it. Allah is just. 
the reward that you get, the potential that you get to get closer to Allah, no other creature can have. Nothing can get so close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of how much effort you have to put in. Because of the struggle. The struggle is you showing that freedom. What are you going to do with the covenant that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you? Are you going to waste it and go back to your biology? Or are you going to exercise that free will and your human discipline? Are you going to say, I'm going to use this angelic part of me, the intellect, and I'm going to have the discipline to raise myself. The, the low biological instincts are there for very good reasons. But they're not going to dictate how I act and how I think and what I'm going to do next. I'm going to dictate. Hence, the purpose of religion. So the Quran, religion, is going to remind you constantly. I'm going to put in a program for you. You could take the easy program. Just do the wajibat and avoid the muharramat. That's layer one. That's the easiest version. And you, then you can complement it with mustahabbat and with makruhat. And the more you do of that, the more this is a training for your discipline. And inshallah, we are four weeks away less from Shahar Ramadan. One of the main purposes of Shahar Ramadan is this. Of course, there's a spiritual component. Of course, there's a social component. Of course, there is a physical component. But a huge component and reason behind the philosophy of fasting is to work on that discipline. I don't eat just because my body says I want to eat. I don't drink just because my body says I'm thirsty. Yes, I understand. I hear you. You're thirsty. I'll get to it. Right now, I have more important things. I'm not so blind. I'm not so weak that I'm going to be dictated to by my biological instincts just because I have a desire. So I act on it. I'm not an animal. Right? And so this is where you see a clear contradiction. Just because you feel like doing something, just because something feels good, it becomes okay to do. No. This is not human. We're going back to being animals here. You eat whatever, you act however, you abstain from whatever and you don't. No. You act based on your discipline. You act based on your intellect. You act based on your duties. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in religion as one of the ways to work that discipline. And when we understand that, it means that you can also add to that as much as you want. And this is what we refer to when we said Imam Ali alayhi salam, when he's asked, why do you worship so much? We have a lot of answers. When the Holy Prophet is asked, why do you worship so much? He says, will I then not be a grateful servant? I'm worshipping out of gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I can never be grateful enough. That's the answer the Holy Prophet gives. Imam Ali, when he's asked, why do you worship so much? He says, This is my soul and I'm training it. This is exercise for my soul, for my discipline. I'm making it better, stronger, more perfect. It gets better the more I put it through stuff. Okay, so in short, excellent question. In short, why is it so difficult? Because that's the whole point of the test. And when we say that the reward for it is heaven, then it has to be, as they say, commensurate. It has to be of equal value. When you say something is eternal bliss, what am I doing to deserve eternal bliss? There has to be some effort. And the imams and the ruwaya, they say, still it doesn't match. 
but it's, you know, we'll take it. We're human beings and we'll take. This is the generosity of God. This is what he wants to give for that. I'll take it. Okay, for a little bit of effort. And that's the whole philosophy of Ahl al-Bayt and how they view this world. It's for what? For, for, for how long? You know, how the, this is how our prophets, this is how Ahl al-Bayt, they view the world. How long is your whole life? Even if, you, even if you were to spend your whole life, all of it, every moment in it, in effort and exhaustion for Allah, which we don't even do. Right? That, that's why they feel so bad. That's why they say all of these things that they say in their ad'iyah and in their prayers, that they feel there's always shortcomings. Because they say we should, it's such a short life and we're doing nothing. How much am I asked to do? I'm not really asked to do that much. We want to, you know, sensationalize it and make it difficult and make it, you know, I have all of these immediate gratification that I want to get that I'm not getting, so that's the end of the world. When Nuh alayhi salam, in, in some of the narrations, when the angel of death came to Prophet Nuh alayhi salam, who in the narrations were told, he lived 2,500 years. When the angel of death came, and he told him, is it time? He told him, yes, it's time. How did you find it? You that have lived this long. He said, it's like walking from the sun to the shadow, or walking from the shadow to the sun. It went like, like, like a glimpse. Right? This was all of life. Or we are told Nuh alayhi salam one day he saw a woman and his people who was in her, you know, in the hundreds or in the thousands of years, according to the narrations that say those people lived for very, very long times. And she was crying because her son had passed away at the young age of a few hundred years. He was so young. And Prophet Nuh alayhi salam told her there will come a time when people will die less than 100 years old, they might be 100 or 80 and they will die. And she could not believe it. And she said, I swear, if I had to live in a world where I could only live for 80 years, I would spend the 80 years in one sajda to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it will be over. Of course, it's relative from her point of view. But when you view the world in this way and you go back to, we always go back to the the school of Karbala, and you see some of the citations, some of the quotes from Imam Ali, from Hussein, some of his companions, how they view this world. Yes, it might look like these disastrous calamities happening, but from the other angle, you say, well, What am I getting in return? And how much is it really costing me? How much time and how much effort? And what does it mean? Okay, so is there difficulty? Yes. Why? Because it's meant to be there Because that's the whole point of our existence To go through struggles Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see How will you behave How will you use the freedom that you have To show that you are a human being Like he made you With everything that he gave you Do you accept that responsibility Will you act accordingly He gave you everything He says I gave you everything you need Now act accordingly if you do, you are better than the angels. If you don't, you've chosen to become worse than the or less than the animals. Okay, I was going to say that's a short answer, but I think I've been talking for a while. So that's an answer. There's a lot more we can say from other angles, but that's one. I think that's, that's one stream of thought that we can develop even further. Sounds good? There was a, another question here. 
answer in your question. I don't know if it's because the way the lectures are designed or, or if it is, but it's almost like you're talking like directly to, uh, I'm talking about myself, like to me in, ter in terms of like the thought process that goes in my mind, like it hits right on the, <laughs> on the nail and alhamdulillah. Uh, it feels like almost uh, every Saturday night is like a, it's very spiritual, like a very spiritual elevation and alhamdulillah, I know hopefully that's at least one of the points of the, of the lectures and it's very much in it. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. If there are any questions, concerns on the sister side, then happy to take them. We're good? Tfadlu. Yeah. yeah. With regards to the, this issue of knowledge and acting, like this relationship between action and knowledge, are you specifically referring to Islamic knowledge or are you talking about any knowledge? And I'm specifically thinking of like our, our secular education because the thing is, the secular education is secular and it's designed to be taught without the religion in mind. Um, so how do we apply that to, to the scenario or the situation of action and knowledge? So excellent question. Uh, so in case you didn't hear, so the question is, are we only talking about Islamic knowledge when we say knowledge must lead to action? Or are we also including non-Islamic action, non-religious or non-Islamic knowledge? Does it have to lead to action or not? Um, I'm going to give a very short answer now. But we've answered this question in a number of, of lectures previously. So it's part of the series and we've talked about it. Uh, in, in this series. The short answer is uh, what makes knowledge Islamic or not is not the type of information. It's the intention behind acquiring the knowledge, one, and two, how will that be used? How will the knowledge be used? If any knowledge so you refer to it as secular knowledge. I've used the example of, for instance, someone who learns about flowers or someone who learns about economy or someone who learns about engineering or medicine or history. These, uh, prima facie as they say, these are not religious or Islamic types of knowledge. Do we need to act on them or not? Here we put two categories. If it's Islamic knowledge, no question that you should acquire it with the right intention and that you should act on it. End of story. What about the other types of knowledge? The short answer is you have a choice. If you do nothing with it, then it becomes neutral. There is no reward and there is no punishment and it becomes something you do just like you live your daily life. You know, when you drink water. And if there is no intention behind drinking water, is it a good thing? No. Is it a bad thing? No. Can you? Yes, there's no issue. But there is no pro or con to it. If you want to turn that, and this is what we talked about when we talked about the whole intention part of the series. We had maybe 13 lectures on that. We said by adding intention to an act, you make it Islamic. You make it sacred. You make it religious. You make it Islamic. I take that knowledge and I say, I will learn about engineering, but I will use that as Allah wants me to use it. I will try to do something good with that. Or sometimes you think this is at the social level. I will help another human being with that. I'll help my community. I will make a better place for Muslims in this society. I will help my people in other lands where they don't have access to medicine, whatever it may be. And sometimes, so that's more of a social outlook to these types of knowledge. That makes that knowledge sacred and Islamic, regardless of the type of information it is. That's one. Secondly, 
forget the social, forget the community, forget others. You learn, as the example I used, you learn about flowers, you learn about bees, you learn about paint, you learn about anything. And you keep thinking about that and this thought process brings you closer and closer to Allah. It makes you realize the power of God. It makes you realize the wisdom of God. It makes you realize the knowledge of God, the majesty of God, the beauty of God, how He has created this world, the mercy He has put in it for these laws to work in this way. Well, there is nothing stronger for Tawheed than that. But we may refer to it as, you know, this is someone learning about insects or someone learning about water or geology or the weather or whatever it may be. But the truth is, so again, two people, one person might focus on just the bee, the other person focuses on the God who created the bee. And what does that tell me about that God? And if you do that, then that knowledge just became sacred. That became a form of tawheed. It brought you closer to Allah. Any type of knowledge that you act on that brings you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now has become Islamic. So the knowledge itself, I understand where someone may be coming from when they say it's secular knowledge, but don't focus so much on the type of information you're getting or even the context from which the knowledge has come to you. The question is, what is your intention in learning that? And of course, the intention can change with time. Okay, My initial intention is to learn this to get a job. But with time, I realize that I can do a lot of good with the knowledge that I have. Okay, so my intention changed and I have a really good intention that Allah will be pleased with. Okay, not that there is anything lacking because if you have the right intent and I say I want to have a good job so that I feed my family, that's also an Islamic intention. Okay, inshallah we're going to talk about that. So the idea is what will you do with the intent, the intent behind acquiring the action, one, and two, what actions will derive now that I know now that I know that this is how, now that I know this about flowers, what, what does that mean? What do I do with it? So of course, the flowers might be a good example. Of course, I might acquire a type of knowledge that allows me to act in the world much more than knowing about flowers. And this is where, if you can catch yourself early enough, I might spend more time, for instance, maybe learning about economy and thinking that that will allow me to contribute more to getting rid of poverty in the world as opposed to learning about flowers. Is there anything wrong with learning about flowers? No. But I may be able to, but this all depends on knowing this ahead of time. Okay? But all that to say, there's two conditions. All I'm trying to say is not everything is going to be equal, but there is a way to take any type of information any type of knowledge, any type of data, and make it Islamic and sacred and godly just by having the right intent in acquiring it and adding the right actions once I know. What does it mean that I know this? What am I going to do with it? If you meet those two criteria, then it's not so much about is the knowledge secular or not. It's what am I doing about it? And if I do the right thing, that's it. I made it into Islamic knowledge. Okay? وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين